the real domestic and economic security issue of having an unhealthy um, people uh, here in our country. So it's time that we bring out of the blind spot the reality of inequity in our society and the huge fiscal impact uh, that it's having on us as a whole. And what I try to do is encourage, especially um, leaders in healthcare, to really hone in on what does inequity cost your system? What does it cost your patients, your communities that you serve? What does it cost your own workforce? All right, Chris Hemphill here uh, at Meeting of the Minds Wobot Health Podcast. We partnered up with the Future of Mental Health to bring a, a, a deeper look at some of these conversations. What you see on stage, or if you didn't have the opportunity, what you could, what you might have seen on stage, uh, we, we like to have a one-on-one -on -one where we can go in depth on maybe the topics that we couldn't get to and, and, and cover to the detail that we wanted. Uh, so today we'll be talking about health equity with Jamal Miller, who is the Chief Administrative Officer at Mercy Medical Group. Uh, of Common Spirit Health. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And um, just just to get it to, to open up the conversation, uh, I, I wanted to bring up uh, some some statistics that that we're aware of that like we actually commonly share. I'm going to start with Satcher Health Leaderships Institute at uh, Morehouse, uh, where they highlighted that between 2016 and 2020, because of lack of mental health coverage we unnecessarily lost 117,000 lives, uh, costing, uh, and, and in terms of cost overall, uh, was uh, $278 billion. Deloitte also reports that, uh, that health equity, excess spending that is uh, routed back and traced back to health equity results in over $320 billion in excess spending. So we're, we're, they're, they're really doing a good job at putting a cost to how much it costs to be inequitable, how much it costs to have bias within the system. That's right. Uh, so really excited, uh, Jamal. Uh, we've got some work to do, mm -hmm. and uh, I keep saying it, we're, we can't solve everything on, on this podcast, but we can get you started thinking uh, down those, those right uh, paths and territories. And, and Jamal, I wanted to brag on you as well, as, as, as well as being Chief Administrative uh, Officer, uh, also California's first health equity officer, and wrote a book, Equity, Equality, uh, and Justice for All. Yes. So, so yeah. I'm, I'm curious about what you hope yeah. that uh, the, the folks watching get out of this conversation. For sure, man. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, I'm honored to be here with you today, um, and I appreciate the brag. I'm just putting that because I try not to brag on myself. But just blessed, man, and, and to be able to have a platform like this to talk about a topic and an issue that I think is the number one issue of our time uh, when we think about uh, the importance of health and racial equity in uh, American society. And I think the topic that you led with as far as the cost, it's extremely important for us to explore uh, the real economic cost. Mm -hmm. um, that's not where the cost started. The cost really started in you know, premature and preventable deaths um, compromised quality of life, um, limited, uh, minimized uh, life expectancy, and those are where the real non-economic costs, um, you know, have impacted people uh, from uh, our communities, from vulnerable communities, underrepresented communities, communities of color for decades and even centuries since the origin 
um, of this particular uh, United States of America. And we're very familiar with that. A lot of us are personally familiar with it in that our families, our cousins, uncles, aunts, you know, neighbors um, have been affected by this for many years. Um, but a lot of those who have power and privilege have had the luxury of us being in their blind spot. You know, so, so I've asked myself rhetorically and literally, how do we center uh, the importance of the presence of inequities in society? And that's where we pivot to uh, the economic implications, which I'm grateful that you've started off with around uh, quoting Deloitte's number of over $300 billion annually um, that cost the American medical uh, system um, due to the inefficiencies associated with health and racial inequity uh, in our healthcare system and projected in that same study um, towards 2040, if we stay on that same trend and trajectory, um, it could cost us annually over a trillion dollars. And that doesn't even take into consideration the uh, indirect costs associated with it, the lack of productivity, the real domestic and economic security issue of having an unhealthy um, people uh, here in our country. Um, poor rural white people, um, you know, urban densely populated communities across the country and a very browning and tanning America that are disproportionately impacted by it. Um, so it's time that we bring out of the blind spot the reality of inequity in our society and the huge fiscal impact uh, that it's having on us as a whole. What does it cost your own workforce? We find that even those uh, healthcare workers across the country who have access to care and coverage, their commercially, you know, employer-sponsored uh, healthcare that they have access to, even those minorities, people of color, uh, women, their outcomes demonstrate those disparities and inequities. And there's a very impact, direct impact to the bottom line of these systems. So it's a moral argument that needs to be made, um, the, the ethical imperative as to why we need to do the right thing in seeking justice, social justice, health justice for all people. But just objectively and plainly put, you know, money talks. And oftentimes people literally do not know how adversely impacted our economy is due to disparities and inequities that exist broadly in society but especially um, within our health systems where we spend 18 and 90 percent of our um, annual uh, gross domestic product on. So it's a huge opportunity and I'm grateful um, in how you've centered that to lead uh, our conversation. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate hearing what you hope people get out of the conversation. Because think about a world where we feel compelled to lead with economics uh, when it comes to something that is not only just a moral outrage and uh, ethical crisis, but just something that we have to live with every day that results in real health concerns that I, I think we'll, you went over in your presentation a little bit earlier uh, here at the, at the conference, and, and maybe we can re revisit a little bit of that, uh, little bit of that too. Yeah. We kind of established some, some key learnings to come out of this conversation uh, for the folks out there. Uh, starting off with uh, the idea of what's missing in this health equity conversation. Uh, stories about your time uh, leading these health equity effort, uh, efforts within California and how to innovate for equity wherever you stand uh, within the, the, the healthcare continuum, the, the, the area that you operate in. Yeah. Sound like a good plan? And Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> That's a plan. Let's do it. Okay. 
well, I'm, I'm gonna talk about cost again, but in a different light. And uh, that light is uh, what I see uh, a lot of health equity leaders experiencing is there's a personal cost to even taking on uh, roles uh, in, in, in terms of leading health equity because you're in a I feel like it's it, you're often in a position where you're having to shepherd change that was unexpected. Yeah. If people don't understand the extent to which bias uh, and, and inequities were causing harms, yeah. then it's having to educate them about it and, and turn around, uh, turn ways of doing business that they might not want to, uh, to, to change. Yeah. So I am curious about your background and, and what's led you to uh, be so persistent in, in enacting and, uh, and driving this kind of change. Yeah, you're spot on, man. It, um, again, the marginalization of the topics of, you know, DEI and specifically health equity. You know, I've been working in healthcare now for over 25 years, and it's been a pretty consistent journey when we think about the term we use as level setting. Um, getting people to a level of understanding who otherwise would not be concerned about the importance of health equity and social justice or diversity and inclusion. And um, it's just a fundamental part of the journey to get there. Um, and when I say there, it's like we talk about health and racial equity in only aspirational ways, but I'm interested in attaining it and making it happen. And the reality is that you and I alone, as, 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 as much of the warriors as we are in, in health and non-health spaces to advocate for health equity, we can't do it alone. It requires allies. It requires coalitions. It requires um, alliances. It requires the unusual suspects. Even some of them don't know what their role is in being concerned with the attainment of health equity. So we. The, the journey requires education and discourse and conversation initially to engage people. Um, it's kind of like um, evangelism, you know, or ministry or outreach, education and awareness, uh, because not everyone has the same understanding that we have, both lived, but also some of us may have gotten the training and academic understanding human and civil rights have been, um, why they're so essential here in the United States of America and around the world. A lot of us grew up in a way that that was center and core to who we are in our upbringing. And then we get out into this world um, in the communities where we live, learn, work, play, and pray. And as diverse as they are, we find out that many of those who are in power, powerful and privileged spaces, they've not had those lived experiences. They've been deprived in our academic systems um, from K through 12 and optional when they get to colleges and universities of learning about African-American history, which is American history, mm -hmm. or um, global history that informed, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and so many components of American history that those who have been in powerful and privileged positions have been very intentional and in, in, in it's documented of taking out, you know, um, our stories and inserting a narrative about our racial inferiority to justify why we were treated like savages and brutes, to justify why you would bring you know, men, women, boys and girls, babies from the western part of the continent to the Americas um, 
for uh, the purposes of the economy of the, the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so how do you justify that? You justify that by a negative racial narrative about how we are less than human mm -hmm. to make it okay. Um, and now when you're in positions of schools being built or, or, or during that time through now, schools being established, hospital systems being established, banking systems being established, all these various systems, institutions, structures that um, we're a part of. Now, the origins of that was at a time where those who were in powerful and privileged positions created something that was not necessarily for us. So a lot of people simply don't know that. They've been deprived of that. So we're not going to get it to a place of equity overnight and a fundamental part of us getting there to achieving health equity is education. How do we hardwire that information into schools? Because it is American history. It's a way of humanizing and giving names and purpose to those who literally built this country on our backs with our blood economies for us to become the most powerful democracy in the, United, in, in the world. Um, we. Um, against our will, we're major contributors and builders you know, to this state, but yet we don't get credit for that. Um, and a lot of times that credit is not given uh, through the educational you know, efforts. So that is what drives me to be that advocate, to take the time, even when it's frustrating in the workplace, mm -hmm. for people who don't want to center this, just to say, okay, let me be patient. You know, let me understand my audience. Let me um, understand my key messages so I can engage with them and help them understand that at any given time, we can be vulnerable. Even with your power and your privilege, um, something can happen to your child, to you, that could demonstrate you know, your weakness by way of being vulnerable and subjected to something that literally um, disempowers you. And how does that feel? You know, how does that... Uh, make you approach a system that you're used to being in control of, but now you may not necessarily be in control. So it's like, how do you navigate through that? A lot of times people have never had to think how we've had to think and how we've had to live. So empathy, humanization, and helping people understand that our history is very much so core to our collective improvement as a society, but it's also core to your bottom line. So there's a strong business case for achieving health equity to DEI. So I like to say we meet people where they are, we take the time, you can't reach everyone, but if you center it as a part of the strategy of the organization, show them how we can get there, show them that this is not something in the margins and add on, but it can be a fundamental strategic imperative to all that we do, mm -hmm. and not disrupting what you're prioritizing, um, that can go a long way. And again, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a journey. It's a marathon, as Nipsey, Nipsey would say, mm -hmm. and just one person you know, at a time. And, and it's been effective, got a long, long way to go. But people being enlightened about the truth um, of what American history really is, the good, bad, and the ugly, that's something we have to reconcile with so that more people can genuinely appreciate and have the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of what um, the experience has been, particularly of those of the African diaspora, and as well as those indigenous and Native American experiences. And once we start to reconcile with that, I think we can start to make um, make progress. Thank you for the, the for for that background, and it just makes me think that 
while I did frame up how difficult it is to, to lead some of these efforts and, and make some of these changes and deal with the resistance, uh, it, it's probably a whole lot more difficult in a lot of cases to be silent yeah. while watching decisions get made that deny opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. And it's courage is the word that comes to mind. You know, I know we talked about what's it's a what missing and I'm probably getting ahead of this, the questions that you have, but courage and heart, you know, people say like, what's it going to take, you know, for us to just do better as a society. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a spiritual thing, but specifically you got to have heart. You know, we, we, in many instances, man, whether it's in our political dynamics, um, and, communities across the country, oftentimes we need a heart transplant, you know, of just seeing people as people, connecting with each other. During COVID, the, the physical separation of humanity, it, I think it helped do a number on us mm -hmm. to where we were not able to connect and to touch and to see people. Given the political dynamics that played out, you know, from one, you know, administration to another, um, the civil unrest with Gary, uh, excuse me, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. There were just so many major collective traumas that we shared as a society. And one of the difficult parts of transitioning through that is not being able to connect with people. So it's exacerbated a lot of our divisions and a lot of the, the ills that we've had, especially in the United States of America. And it's happened around the world. And technology on one hand has been leveraged for good when we think about you know, telemedicine and some other ways, FaceTiming, being able to still connect with family mm -hmm. even though we couldn't see them in person. But also technology in a major way has done harm as far as some of the information um, and exposures that we have had access to. So a heart transplant, you know, not literally but figuratively, a spiritual transformation in society towards just love loving one another, seeing the humanity in one another, and um, letting facts, you know, be facts and science be science. But the truth is we, we gotta have a, a heart transplant of just love and appreciation for just our fellow man, fellow woman. And, um, and that's a big part. And then the other word, the C word is just courage. You know, I look at, um, you know, I went to Montgomery, Alabama a few, um, a couple months ago, and we went to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. Martin Luther King, he was called a pastor there like age 26 or 27. Mm. And um, within a year's time in 1955 is when the civil rights movement as we know it started. And, and you know, you had the Montgomery bus boycott after Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And I was like, 26 and 27. And, you know, you think about him and Malcolm X um, Medgar Evers, they were all like 37, 38, 39 when they were assassinated. I'm 47. And during that trip, I was just reminded, you know, and I write about it in my book as well, just like the courage during that time in particular to do what they did to the extent that, you know, if they had to die, they did. And, you know, progress, relatively speaking, has definitely been made and we have a long way to go. Um, but in our unique ways of power and privilege that we all to some extent benefit from, 
we see less and less courage sometimes where we need to see more of it, you know, and sometimes leadership requires that we stand alone, lean in and have the courage to do the right thing. If you do the right thing, you can never go wrong. So heart and courage, you know, that's not the science, that's not the data, but the extent to which we become detached from those attributes or qualities, that's where we need to reconnect. And I think that's going to be a key part of our ability to move forward to really experience, you know, this beloved community that Dr. King um, so marvelously referenced and documented and talked about. And again, I'm an optimist. Um, I stand on hope. I believe it can still happen. Um, but heart, yeah, heart transplant and courage, man. I, uh, I, I really respect the, uh, the call for uh, finding that courage and maybe a whole nother episode could be a, about cultivating courage. For sure. Part of what you said also makes me wonder, I want to get down into your role as chief administrative officer because uh, I, I think that the way that you framed up how we should be thinking about health equity it implies that a lot of the initiatives, a lot of the efforts are kind of on the sidelines. Yeah whereas these things should be core and endemic. So I am curious about your role, what does chief administrative officer, what, what, what's, what's under your purview, and how does health equity fit into that? Yeah, yeah, so I've been in the Common Spirit Health um, Ministry, the system, for about four years now, and I've been chief administrative officer with Mercy Medical Group uh, for two years um, of those four. And Mercy Medical Group is the largest non-academic medical group in all of Common Spirit Health. And prior to my role um, as CAO, I was a system vice president at Common Spirit for Equity and Inclusion. So that opportunity to lead our national health equity um, effort to develop our first ever um, roadmap for health equity and did that collaboratively with executive leaders across Common Spirit Health, mm -hmm. that laid the foundation of my Common Spirit uh, Health experience. So, a couple of years into that role, when I was looking at other opportunities within the ministry, it led to the CAO role, um, where I worked closely with our CEO uh, to really administer um, the non-clinical um, administrative and operational facets of our practice of over 500 uh, physicians and advanced practice providers. And what I actually documented in my book as well, what I really appreciate uh, about this opportunity I was afforded was that Dr. Alan Schatzel, our chief executive officer who I report to, um, he saw as a leading strength and asset of my experience, not just in healthcare administration throughout the course of my 20 um, plus years at that time, experiences in healthcare. He not only saw that as an asset, but he saw my experience around health equity, social determinants of health, leading California's Office of Health Equity as an attribute uh, that could be of benefit to him, the practice. I appreciate that rather because he encouraged something that sometimes future, sometimes leaders don't encourage. And that is, if you don't have that title of being that health equity leader, some people think that you have to be the only one with that title, therefore you're the only one who does that work. Mm -hmm. And what he's encouraged is what I've talked about for many years is that, you know, whether you're a C-suite leader or you're on the board of directors or you're a frontline worker, it's everyone's role and responsibility to be an ambassador, an advocate, an activist to achieve health equity and social justice. And he, as a chief executive officer, hiring for the CAO role, saw that as an attribute and not a deficit. 
And I have always been appreciative and grateful for him modeling and leading the way as it pertains to leadership and how that has transitioned into my current role. It's transitioned into a number of ways of opportunities to um, present and to share and strategize with um, our hospital partners in the greater Sacramento region, speaking to their executive leadership teams, uh, their leading managers and directors about the importance of DEI and how they can integrate that into their respective facilities, um, efforts um, within our own practice. Um, specifically, an example I'm thinking of is a partnership that we established with Jansen Johnson & Johnson. So they invested uh, significantly into an initiative they call a race um, for health equity. And we um, were able to receive a significant grant uh, forging a partnership with them between our practice, Jansen & Johnson & Johnson, focused on health equity and population health research. And the disease focus is peripheral artery disease. So for many years, we've heard um, about you know, amputations. Um, we've heard about a number of uh, morbidities or comorbidities associated with issues like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So when you think about peripheral artery disease, the progression of that has led to a disproportionate number of amputations in communities and black communities relative to white communities. And the focus of this effort is to retrospectively analyze the data about patients in our market um, and to identify those who are at risk of developing the disease. And we know that disproportionately there is a higher risk for African-American and Latino patients. And the gist of this research is to really prevent the progression of the disease and when and if it does progress, how can we ensure that equitably the last option of amputation or more severe interventions um, is afforded to these patients, especially for all patients, but especially black and brown. And um, that partnership um, we launched earlier this year, Dr. Keith Jones, one of our vascular surgeons is our principal investigator. I have the honor of being like a co-investigator on the project but forging that partnership, bringing some of our other um, departments and Common Spirit Health together to administer this research. Um, so being kind of what I call an executive sponsor in that effort to identify the partnership opportunity, identify the funding, bringing key partners within the organization together to make it happen. Our practice has never done anything like that in particular. Um, and we think it will pave the way for what we can do uh, in the future, but that's just one of a number of uh, examples I can use as to how I can leverage my position, my role and my responsibility and my voice um, to change the game. Um, and it's not always easy. Um, it's not always fully embraced, to be honest, with colleagues internally and or externally, but that's just how it goes. But for the most part, it has been well received. Um, we anticipate excellent results that will benefit patients and communities that we serve and also encourage, I think, the voice of many of our clinicians who are also passionate about DEI um, and specifically achieving health and racial equity in our community. Well, it, it is an incredible example. And um, I appreciate uh, your, your CEO's vision in uh, going back to, to that, that topic that we were talking about earlier, a very specific, oh, that's that person's job, right. but making sure that this is something that's embraced uh, fully institutionally. What I'm curious about is how 
your background influences the decisions and the way, the mode of operation that you're doing today. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm very curious about the learnings and experience as uh, California's first chief health, health equity officer mm -hmm. and how that translates into the work, the experiences, the stories that you're talking about that's happening today. Yeah, that was, uh, as a Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell would call it, a true outlier moment. Um, just always grateful um, for that experience um, for so many, so many reasons. Um, but uh, most prominently, why that experience stands out is a mentor of mine um, that I write about, actually, uh, Grantland Johnson. He was California's first African-American Secretary of Health and Human Services. And he served in the Clinton administration in the late 90s. He was uh, one of Sacramento's first black city council members, uh, first black county supervisors. And uh, I connected with him um, in the senior year of my years at Columbia University cold call to him, even though I grew up in Sacramento watching him at various levels, I had never met him. Mm. So when I reached out to him, cold call, um, and we, uh, he set some time up, and we probably talked for about two or three hours, and he opened up his Rolodex at the time, if you will, and gave me a number of names after we conversed about my interest in going into healthcare. And early in my career, he was key to helping me land my first job in 1998 with Kaiser Permanente. And he mentored me actively over the many, many years. But along the way, he would always say, hey, you should go in public policy. You should work in health policy. I'm like, no, I'm good working in private sector health care. I'm enjoying it. I'll, I'll never work, you know, in health policy or in government. So fast forward um, to you know, my second term or tenure with Kaiser Permanente, working in the National Community Benefit Office, um, another mentor of mine reached out and said, hey, Jamal, California is now recruiting and looking to uh, have the governor appoint first ever you know, health equity officer leading California's Office of Health Equity within the State Department of Public Health. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. And they're like, are you interested? I'm like, yeah, because by then I had learned about like executive appointments or appointments to boards or commissions and how that could be a key you know career impacting moment another way to affect change at scale uh, so that um, opportunity of learning about it pivoted to the opportunity of me throwing my hat in the ring mm. and i went on about my business man i focused on the work that i was doing in national community benefit at kaiser permanente and one day I get the call um, to interview, you know, first round of interviews. And I'm like, okay, cool, this would be nice. You know, and I went in and bombed, you know, so what I thought, the first interview. And I uh, said, when I left out of there, I'm like, yeah, you know, God will have a sense of humor if they call me back for another interview. And he definitely has a sense of humor because <laughs> they called me back. Second interview, I felt that I did much better. And now, in my opinion, and fast forward to extensive process, kind of delays, I finally got appointed to the role. Um, so I'm giving all that background and context to say what led up to it and then being sworn in October 1st, 2013, it was that whole experience where the weight, the gravitas, you know, of the moment and the opportunity just really hit me in that this is an exceptional, unique, influential opportunity and as I settled in I had over 400 meet and greets within my first year 
meeting with advocates and consumers, traveling the state, building up our staff to just under 40, had a very, very dynamic group, team, peers, uh, that executed on the agenda of the Office of Health Equity. We had an advisory board, and I was just able to meet so many people who were equally, if not more, passionate about achieving health and racial equity in California. And I would always reflect back on Grantland. Um, he was there at my Senate confirmation hearing on July 2nd, at my, the Senate, yes, yeah, Senate confirmation uh, hearing before the Senate Rules Committee. And um, within a month's time, he passed away um, from complications of diabetes. That was his last kind of public appearance. And what the, the consistent theme from being considered to being appointed, sworn in, confirmed by the Senate, building the team, that five-year experience, it resonated deeply with me that this is special. This is like not the run-of-the-mill kind of experience. So... I started to be inclined to start documenting and writing and sharing because a lot of times our stories aren't told mm -hmm. or they were told and the narrative was changed or literally the documentation was destroyed. So I felt compelled to be a good steward to capture this moment by starting to write and share the story. So the power of advocacy, the power of public policy being in such an important executive role and seeing the important role that government plays in our day-to-day -day lives is something that from that time till now um, resonates very deeply with me. Um, we did a lot of hard work. It kept me busy. I'm busy now. But that, that, unique, that role will always be exceptional and different. And um, I think what, what resonates with me now from that experience is just the awesome responsibility that we have that when you're in the seat to affect change and to make a difference and to open doors for others just how opportunities and doors were opened up for you do it um, have that courage have that heart to do it and that resonated most deeply um, with me when i was with the state so when i pivoted back to private sector to be honest with you, it's been a struggle, a good, healthy struggle, because, um, you know, that cause, that mission is sometimes hard to replicate, you know, in private sector. Even when you're working for a mission, a nonprofit oriented entity, there's something um, a bit more, more powerful and impactful when we think about systems transformation, that working in a government setting of influence that you can help influence, um, that you can help inspire. Whereas when you go back to your respective organization, system, institution, or what have you in a private sector or a public trade entity, whatever it might be, you know, in that vein, you have an impact for that organization, for that community that that organization might serve. Government, you know, we're in service to all Californians in that instance. So it's trade-offs, um, but those are some of the highlights, the things that resonate with me now, being an advocate you know, for change, for the good, for those who are most vulnerable. And um, that's something that is deeply rooted in who I am. So regardless of where I am, um, what's gonna drive me to transform health systems is the importance of advancing a health and racial equity agenda that achieves social justice as well. I'm going to dig into uh, a, a point you made uh, about when you see a door you can open, why not open it? So I'm curious about um, 
what you see or who you see as unsung heroes uh, that we should be keeping an eye, eye out for within this health equity narrative? Yeah. Give me an example. I think I hear the question right, but like, if you if, if you were to think of an unsung hero, who comes to mind? You know, uh, I, I spend a lot of my time focused on um, the the algorithmic aspect. Yeah. What happens when you have data that is uh, from a system that is that that's inherently imbalanced, to where black patients and Latino patients might not seek care as much as white patients, and thus there, there's uh, less, less data reflected. Uh, so this, I, I know her, her Twitter or X handle or whatever is Math Rachel, uh, but uh, she put together a course. Her course on nat natural language processing included a full uh, rundown. This is on uh, fast.ai, but it included a, a, like one of, the, uh, one of the sessions was a full rundown on potential biases inherent in natural language processing. And that kind of draws a connection to, uh, that. so that's math racial with fast AI, and it draws another connection to uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru, uh, who she, she put a, uh, she, she put out a paper in, uh, I believe it was 2019. She and uh, Dr. Emily Bender, uh, uh, and uh, was it Liz Mitchell? I, I forget the, the, the other name off the top of my head. But these folks put together a paper outlining like the, the challenges and ethical hazards uh, in the approaches that, that, were, that are being used for, for natural language processing. They warned about a lot, of the, uh, a, lot, a lot of the flaws and challenges that we see with large language models well ahead. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, in, in Dr. Gebru's case, her reward not only being unsung, was to be fired by Google, her uh, em employer at the time, uh, after after putting that paper. So that that's just an example of of, of someone uh, who, like, again, I'm I'm, I'm coming at it for uh, like I, I always have these examples around uh, around like al algorithmic bias yeah. and equity and things sure. like that. But yeah. uh, it, it's it's a story that I don't think gets enough attention or appreciation. For sure, no, that those are great examples, man, and it helps me. Uh, respond to the question, man. Un, uh, I have a few in mind. Um, uh, un, unsung hero that comes to mind for me is um, Dr. Cheryl Grills. So uh, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Cheryl Grills, who's um, a leading professor in psychology at Loyola Marymount. And I met her while I was at the Office of Health Equity. She and her team, we brought on to do the statewide evaluation for our California Reducing Disparities project to demonstrate the value of how investing innovatively in uh, mental health interventions that aren't necessarily evidence-based, but they're more, cu more culturally congruent and competent outside of the mainstream, but yet very effective. And her team, you know, was, uh, was sent to us to evaluate these various programs throughout the state that we were investing in because most mental health funding in the state of California goes to the 58 counties. And oftentimes, you know, the counties have a history and other systems have a history of doing more harm than good when it comes to communities of color. So this California Reducing Disparities Project was meant to not only identify innovative practices and interventions, um, but to also how can we demonstrate from a reimbursability standpoint, 
um, from a mainstreaming standpoint, these practices that fall outside of, you know, what has been accepted by a lot of county practices. And her team did a phenomenal job on that front. And that's a piece of why I think she's an unsung hero. The bigger piece is there some recent work um, that she has led as a part of California's task force to evaluate and analyze and ultimately report on um, why reparations should be afforded um, to people of the African diaspora in the state of California. And in that role, um, she you know, put her intellectual you know, genius as well as that committee to work. But on the front lines of what for some seems very trivial, unimportant, unnecessary, she demonstrated that heart and that courage um, to stand up as a black woman, speaking truth to power, objectively, you know, ensuring that this process was completed in a way in producing a report that would inform, I think, what will be a day where California will take some meaning regulatory action, meaningful regulatory action as it pertains to, to reparations. And her cause for social justice, for health and racial equity, particularly within her discipline of clinical psychology, has been second to none. Um, she is a, a mentor, a friend, someone who I um, just genuinely um, appreciate and applaud. Another person that I have the highest regard for who has been a mentor and uh, a supporter, especially when I was at the Office of Health Equity, is now Mayor Karen Bass um, in the city of Los Angeles. Um, when I met Mayor uh, Bass, she was Congresswoman Karen Bass representing her district in Los Angeles. And uh, she was just a strong advocate at congressional levels for health and racial equity, especially as it pertains to at-risk and foster youth. She uh, is someone who just provided great guidance and advice to me and who's been on the front lines since her time of being a local leader um, in L.A. to um, ascending to be the Speaker of the Assembly in California and then ultimately going to Congress. And she has broken, um, you know, window, uh, glass ceilings. Uh, she is the first um, African-American woman uh, to lead uh, the city of California and likely the first to lead the largest, one of the largest cities in the United States. And she is a phenomenal person, um, a bright thinker. Um, L.A. is better off um, having her uh, in that seat. And I'm very grateful uh, for the time that she took while I was leading California's Office of Health Equity um, to lean in and to show me um, some of the tricks of the trade of how you get things done uh, effectively. And the last um, person I'd like to highlight as um, an unsung hero is um, my friend uh, Aletha Maybank. Um, Aletha Maybank is the American Medical Association's first ever chief health equity officer. She and I met um, on a health equity research trip to Cuba years ago in 2014. I was leading California's Office of Health Equity. She was uh, the health equity uh, officer and, uh, and chief in um, the city health department in New York City. And so we would exchange ideas from a state level, from a city level. They were doing some progressive and hugely impactful work under her leadership. And in her role with AMA, you know, the largest medicine trade in the United States that has been around for well over 100 years, she has kicked down doors 
She has challenged the status quo with a very progressive multi-year strategic plan for achieving health and racial equity. And it takes a lot of heart and courage. And I know she's taken a lot of fire, but yet has had a, a lot of good support around the country and has really galvanized a different kind of conversation when we think about how healthcare systems, and particularly medicine, is starting to embrace and, and reevaluate and reconsider why health and racial equity is important. So I could go on and on, but those are, you know, my unsung heroes, you know, not to mention just the everyday person mm -hmm. that, you know, might be poor or homeless or, you know, the single mother, you know, with a son who might need a mentor or might need some inspiration. Um, those are the real unsung heroes that we advocate not only for, but with. We speak on um, their behalf um, and we do what we can in positions of influence on their behalf um, because that is the, when we say equity for all, that's the all, not for some, mm -hmm. but all people. So those are the real unsung heroes and I'm sure that the folks that I referenced would probably share that sentiment. Um, but I give them kudos and props on how they have inspired me to be who I am. Um, I don't have it all down, down packed, um, but I'm grateful what they've influenced me to do, um, how they've educated me to some, to some things and helped me be um, a recognized you know, leader in health equity um, that I am. Well, uh, thank, you. thank you for sharing uh, multiple stories of, of incredible people. It makes me wonder about opportunities for innovation within health equity, like to highlight this is not a pointless grind, it's not trench warfare. Yeah. Uh, so what, what would you see as uh, opportunities for those who, who are focused on innovation and change uh, within the health equity domain? Yeah, I'm big on social innovation. Um, you know, oftentimes social innovation does not exclude technological innovation, mm -hmm. but really social innovation is about how are we leveraging the advent of technology, biotech, um, biodesign, and others within the context of social change? How are we applying it for the greater good? And that's where social innovation um, comes in to play. And one example that I, I learned about earlier this year and that I'm just still deeply impressed by um, is particularly Stanford University. Um, Stanford has their Buyers Center for Biodesign. And among other things, you know, this center uh, is literally a health tech med tech pipeline. They pride themselves and they're known around the world for this innovation um, fellowship, this training program where they bring clinicians from all around the world uh, to train in identifying by way of their curriculum what is the issue that you want to fix by way of med tech invention, health tech invention, biodesign, biomedical engineering, identifying what's that issue that will make healthcare more efficient, foster better outcomes, uh, so on and so forth. The second part of that, really, how do you invent? You know, literally inventing that med tech, that device uh, to affect change in how medicine is administered, um, how operations are done, um, how life sciences are done. And then the third part of the, that process is implementation. How do you package that up and prepare to pitch it maybe to private equity, venture capital, um, other science, you know, uh, life sciences companies that might have an interest in acquiring your device or partnering with you in some way, shape, or form. 
And what they've infused in, into that biodesign center is a deep, sincere interest to health equity and inclusive design. Um, and a good friend of mine who I worked with at the Office of Health Equity um, is now advising them um, on health equity and inclusive design, Dr. Tamu Nolfel. And the reason is they wanted to bring together, you know, this great Silicon Valley-based resource at Stanford University that's been around for over 20 years and coming out of COVID being very explicit about how can we bring this biodesign effort to where uh, it could be of greatest benefit. Um, and one of the areas they're focused on is not only a strategic focus on health equity and inclusive design, is HBCU partnerships. That's the second part. Um, and it's this understanding that as a predominantly white institution, you know, well-resourced, um, understanding that there is also a disconnect and looking at the demography of those who have been trained in biodesign and the opportunities that come with this to, to launch a startup, but to uh, also benefit financially from those startups. And it's a whole different opportunity around advancing health and racial equity that you often don't, don't hear about. So they understand what they don't know and what they don't have and wanted to bring expertise in. And they also want to partner with HBCUs, not to bring like, hey, we're Stanford and we want to come in and run things. They understand that some of the best and the brightest talent that's out there are in undergrad and graduate institutions, specifically HBCU schools of medicine, and they want to bring the two together. So it's mutually beneficial. And I think that's a game changer. Um, and I'm excited that Dr. Tamu Nolfo is there advising them in that space. And just on the outside looking in, I think it's good for people to know that you know, especially if you're at an HBCU, this biodesign work is an, a game changer. It's extremely important to see the health equity and the inclusive design component to it. And a lot of times strategic partnerships like that can help us get to the next level. So that is one of the most recent innovations that has been most impressive to me. It touches on everything from the role that generative AI can have. One thing that that biodesign center is doing is they're facilitating a space for people to ask the questions that historically they hadn't been asking. Yes. But then go all the way back to that point that you were making earlier about health equity not being a side project yeah. because, uh, okay, if we're in a capitalist society and uh, playing the capitalist uh, version yeah. of what we need to, to bring what, what's, what's right to our communities, mm -hmm. then uh, let, let's, let's do that from the ground up. From the ground up, man, the, the analogy I use is like you bake a cake. You know, so many times when, when we do stakeholder engagement, we, we bake the cake and then we ask for input, you know, help us put the frosting on. And then we find out that that carrot cake that we made, it has nuts in it. And the folks we want to serve it to have nut allergies. But if from the beginning, the nascent phases of the idea to create a new biotech solution or a new device. From the early phases, if you're thinking about health equity and inclusive design from A to Z, now you're producing something, especially if it's around the algorithms, generative AI, uh, robot, robotic you know, processing automation, you've created something in a more culturally congruent, linguistically appropriate way, and it just wasn't tagged on at the end. But like you thought about this from the beginning, and that is one of the key drivers as to why they're doing it. 
Well, I'll say this too. You made a, a, another point earlier about the need for courage. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, courage, like thinking about a whole business operation has been put in place, the science has been done, and all this th stuff has been de developed, and there's been millions of dollars of, of investment. Uh, and then they come in for that frosting. And when that, fro that health equity frosting uh, starts to say, wait, wait, look a minute, fundamentally, this was a challenge all from the get-go, yes. and it cost millions of dollars to change, then that requires a high degree of courage to bring up that point. Yes. But it requires a much lower degree of courage to, like, while you're still in the design, before you've, yes. yeah. But, so by addressing this early, because we know that courage is not held by everyone, That's right. so if we can create a scenario where it doesn't take as much courage to get the kind of change that we need, then yeah. we, we're... Going upstream yeah. because it's like it's it's the difference between prevention and intervention. How about we prevent this mm. from happening in the first place? Because it's going to be far more difficult to repair it after it's happened, and sometimes impossible to fix it or repair it. And that's where repair, with regard to inequities, inequality in our society, we've got a long way to go and a lot of work to do. And some people just they don't want to have the courage nor the strength. Um, they don't have the emotional or intestinal fortitude um, to want to do it. So to your point, it's like it's, it's easier down upstream yeah. versus downstream. And it's like, man, you know, stage four, you know, cancer diagnosis. It's hard at that phase versus upstream. How about we stop the cancer from the in the first place if we can or diagnose it as early as possible? And we know that some of the most egregious disparities and inequities that exist for our people, it's a later diagnosis for a number of reasons and quality of life has been compromised. Early death, premature death is almost guaranteed and we can stop that. We can disrupt that by doing what you said, courage that is less, um, requires less of you earlier in the process versus big C courage downstream where you're really fighting an uphill battle. Well, uh, I, I, uh, when we started, when you started making that line around uh, prevention versus intervention, I knew it was going to go back to healthcare, <laughs> specifically. Uh, but uh, a big question that we ask everyone: This is not a Marvel movie that we're watching right now, but we're going to grant you a superpower, and that is going to be to be able to cha uh, change any one aspect of anything about how healthcare is delivered. If you had the power to focus on just one thing, what would that be? Yeah, it would just um, be a strong dose of um, the reality of how anti-black racism and indigeneity is baked into medicine and our healthcare delivery system. Because that, that understanding, it's, it's a block right now for people. If you haven't had a lived experience, even if you spent time educating yourself, when you personally have knowledge and understand the weight, the traumatic generational impact that institutionalized racism and discrimination has had against people in this country, especially black and indigenous people, it, it can't help but elicit action, restorative and reparative action to, to reconcile what was done how it's still affecting us today and what we will do in the future to resolve and mitigate, to mitigate that. And there are stories around the world where, not perfectly, but, but certain parts of the world, countries that have 
come to grips with the extreme, you know, realities of, of traumas done to millions and thousands of people around the world. And it's a big step towards reconciliation um, and it's ongoing. And I don't think here we've, we've really gotten there yet because we're even still having conversations about reparations mm -hmm. to address the impact that anti-black racism and indigeneity has played out. So that would be my superpower, especially in medicine, because the cumulative impact of living, you know, learning, working, playing, and praying in an ecosystem that wasn't built for you, mm -hmm. no matter, you know, how educated you might become, you know, you might reap the benefits of some privileges, the weathering effect of, of living in an ecosystem that's not conducive to your existence it catches up with you and starts to show itself by way of mind, body, and or spirit, you know, and you ultimately will end up super duper stressed out, you know, anxious, fatigued, um, your immune system compromised. Uh, you don't get the best sleep at night. Um, and it weighs on you. It literally weathers on you over time. And that, that's not okay. Um, and so I think that we, we share this information to in, in, inspire, you know, and call people to action. Um, and we have to tell our stories um, about uh, the realities of what has transpired, who it's disproportionately impacted, um, and how can we transform this ecosystem into one that is truly equitable. And we cannot get there unless we have a deeper, broadly shared understanding of what American history has been. The good stuff, the great stuff, you know, the neutral and the extreme horrors um, that have happened, all of it. And once we start to do that, you know, we can make, we can make progress. So not, there are tactics to suppress it right now across this country. Um, but I believe, you know, we always rise like the Phoenix. That being said, why do we always have to rise like the Phoenix? Why can't it just be, you know, an open, equitable educational opportunity to tell our stories? Um, and a part of that story is the impact that racism and discrimination has played and been in the DNA of American history. That being said, we can still get there, but we can't fool ourselves mm -hmm. by like avoiding and only talking about the wins. But we got to talk about, you know, where we didn't get it right mm -hmm. and how we can fix and repair that and how everyone can benefit from equity and not just, you know, the little black and brown people or not just the LGBT. All of us mm -hmm. benefit from all of us getting in on this opportunity. Um, so if I have a light, you have a light, you know, or the analogy is this, you know, I have a candle that's lit. You have a candle that's not I hand my light over to you. Now both of our candles are lit. I didn't lose anything. Mm -hmm. You gained. So if you do that for the person to your right, I do that for the person to my left. Now we've got an illuminated society. No one lost anything, but we all gained by an enhanced, enlightened experience. And there's power in that. And that's what people need to understand that equity affords to all of us. This, this was a very in-depth conversation and uh, even though it was in depth, there's there's obviously more, and there's obviously uh, you're you, you've got your book and you're sharing uh, your actions and 
what you're going through and, and the, the efforts that you're leading, I, I just wonder what, where can people go and, and follow, where, the, where they, can they find the book, et cetera? Yeah, thank you, man. It's uh, jamalmiller.com is the easiest way, J-A-H-M-A-L-Miller.com. And uh, the name of my book is Equity, Equality, and Justice for All. Uh, Born to be an Advocate is the timeline. It's about 130 pages, That's so it's not, you know, not right. dense yeah. reading, um, but it's powerful in that, you know, again, it's not a memoir that is just me-centric, um, but it's about what inspired me, who inspired me, who I come from, why I'm inspired to do what I do, and... Um, and from the feedback that I'm getting, you know, people appreciate the transparency and vulnerability in some instances of sharing, you know, not just, you know, about my experience leading California's Office of Health Equity, but, you know, what has happened since leaving the Office of Health Equity and what led up to me, me being appointed by that. So if you go to jamalmiller.com or if you search on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, any book distributor or book um, store across the country and around the world even. And uh, I encourage you know people to buy it, to reach out, share your thoughts with me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn.com um, as well and uh, would love to stay connected um, to people. But uh, really honored to have this book out that was released in May. And uh, it still sounds wild to refer to myself as an author. You're an author. But, that, um, that is, but I'm grateful for that. Among many, many great things, <laughs> author is one among that list. Yes. Uh, Jamal, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Chris. 